You know, some people just really like to argue. Um, and I was reminded this week of uh, Monty Python skit, which is kind of an older British sketch show. And one of my favorite ones is they had a guy who went to this store or place, presumably because he wanted to have an argument. And so this was a place you could go and pay someone and they would argue with you. But he gets disappointed quickly when he gets in and they start arguing about what an argument is. And it kind of just devolves from there. I won't try to even <laughs> relay the humor of it to you. But often life seems like that, doesn't it? Where there's people and places where it seems like we're just arguing just to argue. We're arguing about what even arguing is. And unfortunately, this is true even in Christian circles. And we have plenty to argue about, don't we? There are things that are, that are good to argue about and things that aren't, aren't that good to argue about, and we'll kind of argue about whatever we can get our hands on. But the reality is that there are some things in the Bible that is just less clear on. There are many things that the Bible is very clear about, and there are some things that, well, it's, well the Bible doesn't talk about that. The Bible doesn't talk about smartphones. doesn't tell us exactly the way, what we should do about that. It gives us principles, tells us everything we need, but there are things that there's a lot of gray areas. And not just there's some gray areas theologically, but there's really even gray areas on, well, what is, is this sinful for believers to do or is this not? And because we have so many gray areas in life and we live often in the gray, we need to know, well, how are Christians supposed to respond? What are we supposed to do here? And this is where we find Paul in his letter in 1 Corinthians in chapter 8 that we've been coming or working our way through. In chapter 8, he finds himself having to talk about some of these gray areas in life. And so part of what we see is he's going to deal with a specific problem that the church in Corinth is arguing about, but really he gives us some principles to know, well, not just how do we deal with this issue, but how should we as believers deal with all of our disagreements? Well, because our culture has really never been more polarized than ever, right? Right? But that's less even because there's more to disagree about now, but it's a lot more because of how we treat each other, how we talk to each other, how we think about each other. So that's what we're going to see a little bit this morning, is we're going to learn how can we disagree as believers well? How can we disagree as people who still love Jesus and even disagree in a way that honors Jesus? So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to look at three things this morning. First, we'll look at disagreement. Then we're going to look at the question that we should be asking, and then finally we'll look at our application. Um, so if you would turn with me um, in your Bibles, we're going to be in chapter 8, it's just 13 verses, it's much shorter than last week. Um, but if you are able, I would invite you to stand, um, just as I read from God's Word. It says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something he does not yet as, know as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or in earth, as deed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, for whom all things are and for all things we exist." And one Lord, Jesus Christ, from whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former associations with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. 
But food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do eat and no better off if we do not. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother or sister for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and sisters and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother or sister stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother or sister stumble. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for the, the opportunity to read it amongst your people, to talk about it, to listen to it. I pray, Lord, that we would be centered and continue to be centered on you this morning. Would be centered on your words. Would you open up our eyes, open up our ears, open up our hearts, allow us to hear not what David would have to say, but what God would say in his word. And we pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Man, you can have a seat. So first we need to look at our disagreement. And so point number one is that Christians must disagree in love. Christians must disagree in love. First, I mean, again, we just need to acknowledge, as we all know this, that Christians are going to disagree with each other. We're people just like anyone else. There is going to be plenty that we do not see eye to eye on. It, whatever you bring up, any topic, we're going to find at least one person in this room, more than likely half of us are going to think something different than the other half, whatever it is. Okay, so we, this is just what happens. And now the questions that we have this morning aren't quite the questions that the church in Corinth had. We're not arguing about should we eat meat at sacrificed idols. At least I haven't been this week. Maybe one of you has been. So I don't want to you know, claim that all of us are doing something before you disagree with me. But what I do want to do first is clarify. Like this disagreement is going to happen and that's okay. That, that's normal. That's natural. However, what I do not mean by that is I don't mean that truth doesn't matter. What I don't mean is that theology doesn't matter. It doesn't, what Paul even says here is he's not just telling us, hey, you know, you guys disagree with each other, do what you want to do. You know, it's really not that big of a deal. Let's agree to disagree. Let's just love each other and move on. Because there are things that we should not disagree with about, or we should not disagree about. One way that's helpful to think about this is kind of a, a term known as like theological triage. Okay, just when you go into the hospital, if you go into the emergency room, if they get overwhelmed with a bunch of people, they're going to have to triage and decide what's most important. What do I have to deal with right now because if I don't, this person might not make it. Okay, so somebody who's just been in a car accident, they're going to get moved to the top of the list. If you came in and you're just feeling really sick, but you went to the ER, okay, you're, you're lower on that triage scale. So this is also helpful. We do this as well in theology. One of the, the primary ways we think about this that may be helpful is there's three tiers or three orders of theology that we need to do triage one. There's the first thing. So these are things that we all really need to agree about. Okay, these are things that if you disagree about any of these things, then you really might not be a Christian. You're out of step, not just with God's Word, but with 2,000 years of church tradition. And, I mean, we can still love each other, but I don't know if you can call yourself a Christian. Okay, those are the first order things. Those are the main things we like to focus on at TBF. Right? That's kind of the heart of our church is we don't want to focus on the other things. We want to focus on the main things. And that's first order. Okay, what would be something here? Well, something here would be the Bible, trusting the Bible. 
believing the Bible is inerrant, that there's not errors in here, believing that it really is God's Word, believing that it's authoritative. That's why we read it. That's why we stand. That's why I read all of it. I think these words are more important than my words. So if you fall asleep after I read this, that, you know, I'll, I'll deal with it. Don't fall asleep before I read with it, okay? Because it, it's God's Word. So that's first importance. You can, if you disagree with that, you are in really big trouble. Okay, the problem is what we do, right? We're going to talk about these other two in a second as well. The problem is we move everything up to one. We move everything up to the most important, and we have to fight, and we have to argue, and we have to disagree about it strongly. Not everything is up here. Up here is the most important stuff. Second order is stuff that it's still important, and it's actually really significant, but we can both be Christians and disagree about it. Okay, we can both believe the Bible, love the Bible, love Jesus, love the gospel, and disagree on something like baptism. Okay, baptism um, is something that we put in the second order because in the second order, this is where it's important enough that churches, you're not going to be able to fellowship with another believer on Sunday morning if you disagree here. This is primarily where our denominations come from because look, okay, and baptism is a good way to think about this, okay? There are people like Presbyterians, okay, Lutherans, Anglicans who practice infant baptism. The way they read the scriptures, they tie it to circumcision and see, no, sir, baptism isn't just for believers, it's just people who are part of the family of God and that's everybody. So we're going to baptize infants, okay? Others like me, would say, no, we, we practice believer's baptism. It's only for believers, so we're not going to baptize infants. Okay, you can't kind of be both in or out. you, you got to pick one. And so you're not going to go to a place that doesn't baptize infants if you think that's what it should be, because that's fairly significant. But we can still both be believers. One of my closest friends is an Anglican, and we rib each other about baptism all the time. Okay, so we can still agree on the main things, but this is something that's a little bigger. Now, third order stuff, this is where most of our disagreements come down. Most of the places that we fight with each other, most of the things that, that we argue about, one of them being eschatology, okay, end times. How's it supposed to come? What, it, what do we do with the rapture? When is the rapture? What, you know, are we amillennial, postmillennial, premillennial, nonmillennial, you know, any of those. If you don't know what any of those mean, that's okay. I can, you know, throw a bunch of books at you and you can listen to people disagree about it. Okay, so that's, that's another thing. But that, that, those are the things that you shouldn't be leaving the church. You shouldn't be going to a different denomination over. You shouldn't be breaking fellowship with each other over. So that, that's a helpful way to think about it. It's kind of these, these tiers of theological triage. But again, the problem is that we put things that are down here on number three, and we move them all the way up to the top. Or we move them up to number two. We say, no, I, I, can't, I can't fellowship with you because I can't believe you would think this. Fill in the blank. That's what Paul is telling us. It's okay. We may disagree with each other. But the most important thing is that we disagree in love. And so he gives us some good general wisdom here in this passage. So that, that's all a little bit of background. It might be helpful to explain, too, what, what are the Corinthians arguing about? What's going on? Okay, I haven't been to a restaurant in a while that has offered me meat sacrificed to an idol, so I haven't had to really grapple with these, these words. But what's happening for the church in Corinth is there are idols everywhere. Okay, just like there's lots of churches in Duncan, there are lots of temples in Corinth, and they all got a different god. And at all of those temples, they are sacrificing meat and they're sacrificing food to all of these different gods. Idols are in every single corner. Idols are in every home. Idols are in every restaurant. Idols are at every party. 
And people are constantly sacrificing their food to them, okay? Right? You went to, if you went to a restaurant in Corinth, you would be offered food that was sacrificed to an idol. If you went to the office party, whatever their office parties would look like, if you went to a gathering, if you went to the festival, if you went to an election celebration, there would be food there that was sacrificed to an idol. Even if you went to somebody's house, there would probably be food there that was sacrificed to an idol. And so these are always, these are kind of, it's everywhere. And it's happening all the time. And so some believe what they're doing is they're struggling. Well, what do we do with this? How are we to respond? Most of them, now if you notice in verse 1, it's got stuff in, in quotes here. Because Paul's responding to their question. Now concerning food offered to idols, you know, we know that all of us possess knowledge. So this is, the church in Corinth is saying, hey, look, we all know this doesn't really matter, Paul, right? I mean, these idols don't really exist. Verse 4, an idol has no real existence. There's only, there's no God but God. So basically what the church in Corinth is saying, hey, we realize these are just idols, doesn't really matter, so we're going to eat it because who cares? Not a big deal. But also there, there's a subtle part of this of, well, they, they really need to participate in this for them, their own thinking. Because meat too, or one th to back up, meat is not something that everybody has access to at this point. Meat is something in the upper echelon of society. This is for the people who are well off. This is the business people. This is the upper class. This isn't the poor. This isn't those in poverty. But so for them to continue, because they want to climb that Corinthian ladder, live the Corinthian dream, be more and more successful, they're going to have to eat meat sacrificed to idols. They're going to miss out on those business meetings. They're not going to get to make the deal out on the golf course. Can't go over to their boss's house. They can't go to the big parties where they got to rub shoulders. So they're going, oh, well, okay, obviously I have to do that, and idols aren't that big of a deal, so okay, I'm going to do it. That's kind of their attitude, and they don't see a problem with this. Is what they're telling Paul, hey, we know, all of us, everybody here knows that this is the right thing. This also tells us, too, this isn't like the church is split 50-50. This is most of them are saying, this is fine. But and really, they're, you can read between the lines. They're writing Paul, hey, can you tell these other bozos? to get with the program here. They're trying to make me feel bad about what I'm doing, Paul. And we need, they need to knock it off. So tell them to stop. But what we, you realize here, and Paul fleshes this out a little later, which we'll hit in a moment, other people are really bothered by this behavior. And it's understandable because they're in this idol-worshiping culture. And so there are people who are new converts who are coming to faith in Jesus that have been worshiping idols not that long ago. And so for them, this isn't something they can just turn off and go, ah, it doesn't really matter. It reminds them of the life that they have been living for a long time, worshiping and sacrificing and caring for them. So this is actually temptation. And the way Paul responds to them is significant too. He says, if anyone imagines he knows something, he doesn't yet know as he ought to know. Okay, David, paraphrase, you guys aren't as smart as you think you are. You guys are all proud of how much stuff you think you know. You really don't get, you guys don't get it, do you? So if anyone loves God, he's known by God. He's trying to say, guys, you're, you're missing the point. You guys care more about being right than you care about loving each other. And the point isn't that you're all right and everyone gets the most knowledge and knows everything. The point is that you love each other as a church family as you're supposed to be. Right? There's lots of things we still disagree about today. Right? Or maybe we don't disagree in this room. We're all on the same page on something. I, I doubt it, but maybe. You know, we'll just pretend that's the case. But Christians outside in our community or in other places we disagree. What are things we disagree about? We can disagree about, you know, can Christians have tattoos? Yeah, I mentioned that. Some people feel very strongly. 
Can Christians listen to secular music? Can Christians smoke weed or is that terror? Can Christians serve in the military? Should Christians not serve in the military? Should we be pacifists? Who can Christians vote for? Can Christians vote for a Democrat? Should Christians only vote for a Republican? Should Christians drink alcohol? Should Christians not drink alcohol? You go down the list. There's tons of these things that there are people who we agree on the first order things, so we all love Jesus together, but there are other things that in this room, we may all have very strong opinions about some of those things, okay? Chose those things for a reason. But St. Augustine, in writing, reading some of his sermons about this passage, this is in the two, three hundreds, he wrote and said, you know, love knowledge, but put love ahead of it. What we're supposed to do, what Paul wants them to see, you know, flesh this out more, is we are to love each other more than we love being right. We can disagree. That's fine. You do not have to agree with me on everything. But what we do have to do as believers is we have to love each other. Even as we disagree, even in the minute where I can't believe you would think that, you should obviously think this, we cannot stop loving each other. That doesn't set us free from our obligations. And again, it doesn't mean that these things don't matter. Some of even these third order things are actually significant. They're important. They're big things maybe we should wrestle with, we should figure out, we should talk about. But... But we still must love each other, even as we disagree with each other, even as we fight, even as the, especially as the world fights about something. If we're fighting about the same thing inside these walls, what does that say about us? So we can disagree with each other, but we must disagree in love. Because again, these, these things might matter, but they don't matter more than our responsibility to love each other. Because if you are right and you are not loving, you are wrong. That's what Paul is saying. So that's our, our disagreement. The, the question that we, we need to ask is really, um, as we th when we come to some of these questions, when we wrestle with, should Christians do this? Should Christians not do this? Really, I'm kind of giving it away here. The question we need to ask is, should I, not can I? So number two for your point, the question that we need to ask is, ask, should I, not can I? This is what Paul does, and here's what I mean. Too often when it comes to some Christian discussions, especially about is something sinful or is something not sinful, what we do is we start and ask, are Christians allowed to do this? And this comes from a good place, right? So we want to know, am I following Scripture? Am I in sin? Am I honoring Jesus or not? We want to know, is this something that Christians can do that we are allowed to do, or is it something we're not allowed to do? But that's not, that's not good enough. It's a good starting spot, but we can't stop there. Because just because something is not sinful, just because I could do something, and I'm not violating Scripture, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's wise to do it. It doesn't mean it's a good thing to do it. Okay, it's probably not sinful for me to drink five Dr. Peppers a day. Okay, I would love to do that. I checked the Bible recently. I've been reading through it, kind of doing our devotions, trying to read through it as fast as I can. I have not seen anything in Scripture so far, I'll let you know when I finish, that says it is sinful for me to drink five Dr. Peppers a day. However, just because I can do that doesn't mean that is wise to do that. Okay, it doesn't mean it's a good idea to do that. It's a silly example, but that's part of what Paul wants them to see. It is not just about is something sinful or not. You can't stop there. Verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are no better off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Saying, if you do this, you're not in sin. If you don't do this, you're not in sin. It is not this act alone that, that does it. 
But he's got a lot more to say. He doesn't just say that and say, that's good. Paul gives them some explicit instructions. What he's saying is, something being sinful is not the main question to ask. Good question, place to start, but don't stop there. And then he gives two different answers to the people, to two different groups of people and saying, well, should you do this? And so the first one he gives, he talks to the weaker brother, as kind of it's, it's called here, or the weaker sister. And this is a person who does believe, you know what, I think eating meat sacrificed to idols is sinful. And so to that person in seven, he says, however, not all possess knowledge. So some don't agree with your fancy knowledge that you think we all have. But some, through former association to idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. And so to that person, really, Paul's saying, hey, to you, you should not do this. You can do this. It's fine. You're really not in sin or not in sin if you do, do, do or don't do this. But you should not do this. You can do it, but don't. And this is surprising because the church in Corinth thought by writing to Paul and saying, hey, tell all these other dummies to get on our side and to just do it. Paul says, no, 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 no. Actually, they, they shouldn't do it. You are technically correct. They can do it, but they should not. And so Paul spends most of his time here actually rebuking the people who think that it's fine, even though he seems to agree with them. And so the person who believes this is sinful, who it's going to, because their conscience will be defiled by it, so they believe it's sin, they're going to feel convicted and guilt over it, then they need to not do it. So somebody, you need to follow your conscience is part of what Paul is saying here. But he does qualify this a little bit, because the conscience is a good guide, but it's not a perfect guide. We know other places like 1 Timothy 4.2 that tells us if we keep walking in sin, we can sear our conscience. We can blind our conscience. We can change our conscience. So just, this is, Paul's not embracing enlightenment theology of just, you know, everyone do what is right for you. Follow your heart wherever that leads you. That's not what Paul is saying. But he's saying, generally speaking, if you think that something is violating your relationship with Jesus, that the Bible is clear and you should not do this and you're not going to be able to walk with Jesus doing it, then you shouldn't do it. Why? It's going to tempt you to more sin. Verse 10 too, he says, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? He's going to see you do something and then do something that he thinks is sinful. Okay, somebody who's doing something they think is sinful, whether it is or not, how do you think that's going to impact their relationship with God? And not well. Now they're going to go on a path of, well, may as well just keep doing more sin. I've kind of, you know, messed it up today. And so this is part of what Paul's talking about to those people, because again, they've come from worshiping idols. They don't possess the, the knowledge of everyone else of this isn't a big deal. It is a big deal to them. They can't just eat the meat and move on. It feels like they're still worshiping something, something that they're fighting hard every day to not worship. And so then you're telling them, I'll just worship it a little bit. And they're going to get sucked and pulled right back into that life. Verse 11 so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. So what, what isn't actually a, a big deal necessarily will lead to a destructive path for some. And that's why Paul says, okay, don't, that question of can I do this is not a good question. It's fine to start, but you need to ask, should I? Yes, you can, but you should not because it will lead some of you to be totally destroyed, to embrace idol worship again and walk away from Jesus. So to one person, 
He says, do not do this. A good way to think about this for us is think about addiction. Okay, think about addiction. Think about somebody who struggled with substance abuse. Think about somebody who struggled with alcoholism. Should a former alcoholic drink alcohol? No. Can they as a believer? Do all believers have the right to probably drink some alcohol and not get drunk and it's okay? I would say yes. Is drinking sinful? No. But should an alcoholic do that? No, absolutely not. Please do not. Why? That's part of what Paul is saying, because it will lead to destruction. So to that person, he says, now, now to the other person, he actually asks a similar question. He says, yes, you can do this in eight, but no, you actually shouldn't do this. Verse nine, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block for the weak. So Paul actually switches this here. It's significant he uses the word right. He doesn't just say you can do this. He says it's your right to do this. Okay, we like rights, don't we? Especially as Americans, Oklahomans, we're passionate about our rights. We've got a bill of them. We like to keep adding to them. I feel like we've got rights to do all sorts of things. We're really passionate about defending our rights, keeping our rights, being thankful for those who protect them. That's all good things. So Paul says that you actually, it's not just you can do this, you have a right to eat meat sacrificed to idols if you want. But, Paul moves on, it's not really about your right at all. It's not about our rights to do this. The question is not, do I have a right to do this as a believer? The question is, not even about our rights at all, but it's about how can I love my brothers and sisters? And for some, what this looks like often is that for believers, what we do with our rights is we give up our rights. We throw our rights away if it will harm our brothers and sisters. That our love, our church family is more significant than what we think we have a right to. This is what Paul tells us. Verse 9, take care. This right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So sometimes our exercising of Christian freedom can lead our brothers and sisters to sin. Well, how does this happen? Again, intend someone sees you and who have knowledge, eating food, exercising your rights in the idol's temple. Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food? Offered to idols. 11, so by this knowledge, the weak person is destroyed, the brother or sister for whom Christ died. For whom Christ died. This is strong like, language that Paul would use. And this is significant. This is countercultural. what Paul is calling for them. He's saying that for you believers, you have this Christian freedom and you need to surrender it and give it up and not use it. Because not how it affects you, but how it's going to affect somebody else. You're supposed to care and love. And this is countercultural. This is not very Roman. This isn't very Corinthian. This is still countercultural. This isn't very American. Okay, well, no, 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 I don't want to give up my rights. Why would I ever do that? That's the opposite of what I want to do. I want to have all the freedom I can necessarily ha- I can have. Which, again, isn't a bad thing, and it's good to care about our freedoms. It's good to care about our rights. But, Paul's, but when Paul is talking about freedom, the biblical view of Christian freedom, at least, what, what can we do as believers that is or isn't sinful? And he'll talk, we'll talk about this more when we get to chapter 9. Is the biblical view of our Christian freedom, as Paul does it, is so often we have it, so that we can give it away, so that we can lay it down, so that we can surrender it for others. Take care of this right of yours. doesn't become a stumbling block to the weak. 
An example of this is Jesus. What does Jesus do with all of His freedom? He's got all the freedom in the world. He's the King. He makes freedom. He decides what freedom is. What does He do with that? He gives all of it up. All of it. To become a tiny, crying, whiny baby who will then be stuck in the confines of a human body to die for sinners who don't deserve it, who spit on His face like you and me. Jesus gives it all up. And Paul has harsh words for when our freedom causes others to sin. Again, it's not just in 11 that we are literally destroying the brother or sister for whom Christ died. He's trying to say this isn't just like, hey, you're wrong. That wasn't very nice to them. Maybe try and be nice. He's saying, I literally came down and died for that person. And you are causing them to walk away from me just so you can do something that you want to do. Really. That's what he's saying here. And 12, thus sinning against your brothers and sisters and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Hear this, you are sinning against Christ when you do this. This isn't just you're not kind to someone. This isn't just you need to ask that person for forgiveness. This isn't just some interrelational issues. This is an issue that you have with you and Jesus. You are sinning against Jesus. This is one of the only places that phrase, sinning sinning against God, comes up a lot all throughout the Bible. Sinning against Christ only comes up one place, and that's this one. And that's important. It should make us pause. Because, again, we need to be more concerned about loving our neighbors, about loving our brothers and sisters, then we are concerned about what do I have the right to do as a believer. It's not just what can I do, it's what should I do. do does me doing this harm those that I'm supposed to love? And we can look, and again, this isn't, this isn't me, this is Paul, this is God's Word saying this. I, I, I wrestle with this passage. I, I don't like this very much. I wish Paul would say something else, but this is what he says. And look at his own example in 13, what Paul himself says he will do. He says, therefore, if food makes my brother or sister stumble... If doing this would cause anyone to sin, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother or sister stumble. Notice too, he's saying, I won't eat meat, period. All the other times he's talking about meat, sacrifice to idols, here he's just saying meat in general. Why? Because there's sometimes you'd go to the market and there'd be meat and it wouldn't be labeled of whether it's idol sacrificed or not. And he's going to talk about this in the later chapters as well. But what Paul is saying is, you know what? Just to be safe, I'm going to not eat meat at all. I am willing to become a vegetarian because I love my brothers and sisters. Okay, I especially don't like that. My wife eats very vegetarian, so we eat a lot of vegan meals. It's okay. It's not really my favorite. But so like reading this, is like, oh, really? Okay, Paul. Um, wow. I, I don't like that very much. My wife liked this verse more than I did. But that's what Paul is saying. He is saying he is giving up his rights, his freedom, his ability to eat meat as often as he wants. He's saying, no, I will never do it. I'll just abstain, period. Why? Because of the love that he has for his brothers and sisters. And Paul wants us to see, again, this question is not just can we do this, but should we do this? And it's not about ourselves. Christianity is a, relationship, is a relationship between us and Jesus, but it is never supposed to just be this individualized, lone wolf thing. 
It's just about me and Jesus. You know, you do you, I'll do me. Don't really care what you're doing. Don't really care what we're doing. Let's just, maybe we'll come together sometime. If it's good for me, I'll, I'll set the rules. But Christianity, all of us, it is about all of us following Jesus together. When Jesus came and died on the cross, He died on the cross for you, for your sins. But He also died on the cross for my sins. And He also died on the cross for the sins of the person sitting on your right and on your left and for the person who's not in this room. He died on the cross for the sins of all of us. And as believers, it's not just that I am saved now, that Jesus has justified us and we can go and be with Him in eternity forever, but it is also that we have been baptized into a family. He has adopted us as sons and daughters, and we're not only children. Okay, there's a lot more brothers and sisters in this family. That's why brothers and sisters gets repeated over and over and over and over and over again, because it is not just about what can I do, it's also how does this affect my church family? How does this affect my brothers and sisters in the faith? That we, one of our responsibilities is making sure that our freedom as believers helps our brothers and sisters follow Jesus. It doesn't harm them. And this is a responsibility that we have to each other. It's not just how can I follow Jesus in a way that is best for me, but how can I follow Jesus in a way that's also best for you, in a way that encourages you, in a way that doesn't pull you out. So let's flesh this out some ways, maybe give some examples. A good example of something Christians can disagree with is, you know, whether or not alcohol. Should Christians drink alcohol? Should they not? Now, some will say, you know, as believers, we really, we should be like Paul here, where he's saying he's never eating meat and we just shouldn't touch alcohol at all. Okay, we just, the Bible says very clear that we shouldn't get drunk ever, but just for wisdom's sake, it's just good if we just abstain completely. Now, there are others who say, you know what, it's fine. Jesus drank wine. Paul tells Timothy to drink wine. It seems like a, a normal thing. Yes, there's some differences, but not enough. So it, it's okay. We should avoid drunkenness, but generally speaking, it's fine. That, that's kind of, personally, that's more where I am. I'm not a teetotaler, but this also is, I think it's something biblically allowed, but it's not that big of a deal for me because I really don't like alcohol that much, just being honest. Um, I think beer's just kind of gross. I like really fruity drinks that just taste like soda, maybe a cider. So like it's, and maybe once every few months I'll have one. And then I'll be like, wow, that was too expensive. Why did I do this? I'll just drink my Dr. Pepper. It's cheaper. Um, and kind of move on, really. So, so generally speaking, right, that's where I'm at. Now in seminary, I was in a small group, a small Presbyterian church. And it was a wonderful small group. Now half of the people in our small group were former addicts. Okay, half of them had, most of them had struggled with hardcore drug issues. There were a couple that were alcoholics. Okay, and it's a Presbyterian church, not teetotalers. We go to some church events, and there would be alcohol there. Okay, there would be wine on Sunday. It was just normal. But, so at these, we got to go out to a restaurant all together to celebrate. And, you know, we'd be like, hey, do you want to get a drink? And then these former actors say, hey, you, you guys can do it. And, you know, it's okay. It doesn't bother us. You know, we're good. We're fine. And that moment I wrestled, well, you know, I can do this. It's fine. They're saying I can do this, but should I do this? Is this a good idea? I thought no, and so I wouldn't. I would always abstain if ever I was with them. Why? Because I care more about them, even though they're telling me it's fine, than I care about can I do this or not. So again, the question isn't do we have the ability to do this, but should we do this? How will this affect others. 
And, and apply that to not just addiction, but to, to other things, to everything. You can apply it to television. You know, what kind of shows are you watching? Okay, Christians can do this a lot. This is definitely an area we disagree about. We'll say, like, that's a show. No Christian should ever watch that, period. No Christian should ever watch that, period. Christians only watch Veggie Tales and, you know, Bible Man or whatever. Okay, say that. Hey, there's lots of people who are there. You know, no, I think it's okay. I, you know, I grew up, my dad, we watched a lot of movies together, so I watched a lot of things, and I watched some things, and then, you know, this gets me in trouble with my in-laws. They'll be like, oh, what you watch? Oh, this movie is really good. Oh, does it have much stuff in it? And you're like, no, I don't think so. I don't really remember anything. Then we start watching and go, oh, yeah, I guess, I guess it does. <laughs> I forgot. Man, I just don't pay attention. It doesn't bother me that much, but wow, it really bothers them, right? So this can, that can be something. But so what's our question? It's not just, can I do this? But how, how do I talk about it? Yes, I can do it. There's things I feel free to watch that might, you know, you would not feel free to watch. So what should I do? What I shouldn't do is come and tell you how dumb you are and how wrong you are, and you need to watch this because it's great. What I should do is just not talk about it, not beat you with it, not parade it around in front of you, because there would be some things that some of you would watch, or just watching television in general, that would lead you to sin. And so you shouldn't do it. So that's, that's part of, and again, this is complicated. This is hard. This is gray area, right? This is not easy. But our guiding question in all of this shouldn't be just, can I do this? And if I can, then fine. I'm going to do whatever I'm going to do, and you just need to deal with it. It should be, how can I walk with Jesus in a way that also encourages you? How can I make sure that I exercise my rights as a believer in a way that doesn't harm your, harm your walk, that doesn't cause you to stumble. It's about should we, not can we. So it's a difficult question. Let's move to our, our application. And well, there's lots of ways to apply this um, passage, but I think this is something that we can really apply not just to as believers and things we disagree about, but just in our disagreements in general. Uh, number three is that we need to listen to those we disagree with. List, or, or try to understand those you disagree with. So try to understand those you disagree with. One of my professors Bible college said this, and I never forgot it. it was, I thought it was just so brilliant. He said, maturity is not knowing what you believe. Real maturity is when you can understand why somebody disagrees with you. So maturity isn't knowing what you believe or why you believe it. Real maturity is knowing why somebody disagrees with you. It's understanding it. It's being able to see their perspective. doesn't mean you have to agree with it, but it means you don't just hear it and go, oh, why would an idiot think that? And it was a wonderful class. So we talk about a lot of these issues people disagreed with. And I just remember, because we talk about, you know, we talk about tongues, we talk about Calvinism, we talk about dreams, eschatology, talk about all those things. So it led to lots of interesting discussion. But we'd come to some of these and talk about something, somebody would raise their hand and be like, you know, just... Why did somebody think that? Didn't, didn't John Calvin read the Bible? Why would he ever think that? And just see the professor. He usually did good. but make other people just roll their eyes and go, yes, like, just because you don't agree with them doesn't mean they don't like the Bible anymore. Right? So what, what do we need to do? We need to be the kind of mature believers who can actually understand why someone disagrees with us. Doesn't mean it doesn't matter doesn't mean we have to agree to disagree, but it does mean a good way to love someone is to try and just see their perspective. Because so often what, what we can do when someone disagrees with us, we fill in the blank, is we can just roll our eyes at them. 
we can be shocked. I can't believe you would think that. I thought you were somebody smart. I thought you were mature. I used to like you. But now I know you think that. I don't like you at all anymore. I don't want to be around somebody who, who thinks that, who does that, who votes like that. Whatever. Fill in the blank. We, we all have something like that, if we're honest. But we need to see, is the reason that somebody disagrees with you isn't because they're an idiot? Maybe it is, but most of the time it's probably not. It's probably not because they aren't as smart as you are. It probably is not because they don't like the Bible as much as you do. It probably isn't because they're really immature and you're so much more mature in faith than they are. It could be they just don't find something as convincing as you do. It could be they're seeing a different scripture that you're not seeing. Could be they've had a different life experience that's really formed the way they see and they care about something, and you have not had that at all. As believers, we're called to love our brothers and sisters in faith, and part of loving is learning to listen, to listen well, to listen to, to understand. Too often when we disagree with somebody, we rush to fight. Think, oh, well, you haven't read this. Oh, well, have you read this book? Have you seen this article? Here, let me send you this clip. This will show you why you're so wrong, and you'll agree with me after you watch this 30-second thing, I'm sure. I've never heard of that happening ever, but that doesn't stop us from doing it. And we freak out. But one of the things I think we should do before we rush to do all of that is we should just stop and just try to understand. Just ask questions. And ask questions because we genuinely want to know why they think something, not because we're looking to trap them. Not asking gotcha questions. Not trying to do whatever we can, but we need to be committed to loving somebody like Jesus actually loved them, like Jesus gave his life for them. That needs to be, in all of our disagreements, our starting place needs to be that love. And the reality is, I think that just listening without arguing when it comes to some of these things or just trying to understand, that can be one of the most loving things you can do in the moment of disagreement. Rushing to fight, rushing to tell them why they're so wrong. That shouldn't be your first step. This doesn't mean you have to agree with them. Again, that's not what I'm saying. Don't hear that. But too much of us think that, well, if I love somebody, that means I have to tell them the truth. I have to tell them why they're so wrong. A lot of the time, they're probably going to know that you think they're really wrong. But it, what if we just listened first? What if we tried to understand them? And this, this takes time, this takes love, this takes maturity. The reality is if the gospel is true, if Jesus died on the cross for our sins because he loves us and he wants to deliver us, he didn't just die on there for me, he, he also died on there for you. And he died on the cross for the person you disagree with. And if the gospel has put us all in the same family, then we need to love our family members well, even when we cannot believe they would think something different than us. And so as we disagree, it's our responsibility to love each other. When you find out a brother or sister, someone else in, in this church or outside of this church does something you think is sinful, instead of rushing to condemn them, instead of rushing to beat them up over the head, why don't you rush to just understand? Don't you rush to ask, well, why do you think that? Can you show me? Like, here's what I wrestle with. I wrestle with it. What do you think about that? Well, what makes you think this is okay or not okay? What do you, you know, how can I help you as a believer? Like, these are all things I think we should do and we should be a little better at. Personally, I've, I've had to do this with um, 
with family especially. I've got one sibling that who him and I don't agree re- really about much at all. Okay, and so there's oftentimes, you like to be a provocator, so tell me some things, just because he knows I'm not going to agree with it. You know, rile me up, start a disagreement, should start charging him money for it, right? So it's kind of that kind of thing. But so this, this was hard for me early on in our relationship when I had to realize, okay, you know what, maybe I don't need to tell him why he's wrong on everything he tells me. Maybe I could just shut up and just listen to him and nod my head and ask him some questions. Because I felt, and I was always you know, taught, no, 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 you have to speak the truth. I have to tell him why he's so wrong. Well, you know what? He, he knows that I think he's wrong. I've gotten much better at this. He's still telling me things, and I know he's telling me them because he knows I don't agree with it. And every now and then I'll tell him, hey, you know I still think this, right? Okay, just check it. But I'll listen. And you know what? Our relationship is much better now. Why? Well, because I'm trying to love him because he's my sibling. And he's still going to be my sibling, whether he's right or whether he's wrong. And the important thing isn't convincing him, because if I tell him how wrong he is and then he wants nothing to do with any, me anymore, that doesn't really help anything, is it? Our, that doesn't mean, again, this doesn't mean we're afraid of conflict. This doesn't mean we don't talk about our disagreements. But we can disagree in a way that is rooted in love. And not a way that we feel like is love, but that the person who we're disagreeing about feels like we still love them. That needs to be our, our, our guide. And so where we've been this morning is we, t- we talked about disagreement, that we Christians need to disagree in love. We will disagree. We're going to disagree a lot, but let's do it in love. And the question we need to ask when it comes to Christian freedom isn't, can I do this, but should I do this? Thinking primarily how this is going to affect others, not just how is this going to affect me. And finally, we need to just try to understand those we disagree with. I think it's a good way to, to practice this. Try and get in someone else's head. The goal in all of our disagreement is that we need to disagree with each other like we are family that Jesus has died for. We need to disagree like this other person is someone who Jesus spilled their blood for on the cross. That this is someone who Jesus took every lash on his back in silence because he cares about them. That he hung on the cross and he suffocated to death with his lungs filled with his own blood because he loves that person. We need to keep that in our minds as we disagree. It doesn't mean that it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that it's not important. But the most important thing is that even as we disagree, We disagree in love, and we do it like family that loves each other and family that cares about each other. I'm going to close us in prayer, invite our worship team to come back up and and lead us in worship. Lord, I thank you that you, you died for us. Lord, that even though we are a bickering family that seems to constantly fight about everything we can find, Lord, you still came and you died for all of us. Lord, we we need your help because we don't disagree well. And even thinking and wrestling with us, even preaching this, we, we all, me included, need your help to love each other better. This is not something we can do on our own, but only something we can do if you fill us with the Holy Spirit and fill us with your love. 
Lord, would the next time we, we find ourselves in an argument or disagreeing with someone, would you fill us with that love and would you help us to love them, to try to understand them? And would you help us to disagree in a way that honors you? Because only you can do this, Jesus. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we continue to worship in song. I'm so grateful that he is the lion and the lamb. I'm grateful that he is coming. We're going to take a, a pause in our series in 1 Corinthians next week. Um, we're going to do a short two-week series on Easter entitled Waiting for Resurrection. And, and next week we're going to go to Revelation 21 and talk a little bit about what is it going to be like Jesus comes. I'm so excited to, to do that, so I hope you'll, you'll be there. I'm going to read our benediction this morning from Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Abound in hope, church family, this week. You're dismissed.